Welcome to the new BYP Podcasts. I'm going to continue my discussion using the mathematician James A. Lindsay in his magnificent book, Dot, 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 Infinity Plus God Equals Folly, to discuss the issues of how making God infinite, such as Joseph Smith did in Doctrine and Covenants 20, verse 17, is highly problematic, as it is, interestingly, problematic for any God proposed. A recurring theme that I encounter from religious apologists is their strong tendency to try to argue God into existence through any number of claims to necessity. What sticks out to me, though, is that they always resort to philosophical-style arguments instead of being able to present verifiable evidence for the existence of their God, among other theological claims. Now, this is truly bizarre. It would seem likely, then, that apologists at least partially confuse the map for the terrain, to make a useful analogy, possibly because they, and especially the Christian apologists, and I I would personally propose the Mormon apologists in here also, they lean so heavily upon Platonic thinking. A chief goal of religious apologists, and indeed any philosopher who plays in the philosophical field of ontology, and ontology is, is like dealing with questions about existence, about fundamental reality, is to demonstrate logical necessity, that something must exist. Well, the problem with this endeavor is that it can put the cart before a really big horse. Many of these ideas are abstract, and being thought necessary as a result of various arguments, these abstractions sometimes get unreasonably reified. So, uh, I find the conflation of logic and reality to be an enormously common mistake, including in Platonism, which is something of a refined form of committing this error. So, this misunderstanding is not limited, however, to those attempting to defend their beliefs in God. It is exceptionally common among them since, lacking credible evidence, philosophical arguments are often central to their efforts. And these arguments essentially try to logic God into existence. And they do this by showing that it is a logical necessity. Doing this for God's existence is, on the whole, just playing word games, though. And as weird as it is, a philosopher could prove logical necessity for the existence of some entity, say a deity, and yet no such entity must actually exist in reality. Now, this claim sounds preposterous, but if the logical framework the philosopher is using doesn't really match reality, we can prove all sorts of things are logically necessary and yet physically meaningless. Abstract mathematics provides a useful window into this line of thought. It's actually easy to think of examples of this kind of thing if you spend any serious time studying mathematics, especially that related to infinity. 
So, for instance, numbers that are so large as to be essentially meaningless, and I'm not talking about cute little big numbers like Googleplex, one with 10 raised to the 100 power zeros following it, or skews or even grams numbers, which are too big to succinctly describe, but you really ought to look them up. They're fascinating to be sure. And these are fantastically big, but they're actually smaller than most. There's an entire branch of mathematics philosophy, in fact known as ultrafinitism, that says that after some point, numbers really don't mean anything. Certainly just because we can produce some sort of a notation that indicates what they are, and because the notation and the axioms underlining no underlying number theory guarantee that they exist as abstractions, it's not incumbent upon the universe to produce or house any sort of structure that can be enumerated by every number. So it's actually easy to come up with numbers that dwarf any number that can represent the size of anything that a finite universe can create, at least without getting a bit too little ad hoc. So, for instance, if our universe is indeed finite, then as mathematical abstractions, there are numbers that are simply far too big to count anything, both physical and interesting. We could, for example, simply take the best data available, say, estimating the total number of quantum states in the volume a few billion times the size of our observable universe. And then for extreme overkill, let's raise it to skews number power, so or do so skews number of times. In doing so, we leave meaning far, far behind, and yet do not even yet show up on a map that extends to infinity. Now, other examples of unreal abstract ideas are copious. What do fractions of super large numbers really mean in reality, like one over the huge number just described? How about transcendental irrational real numbers like pi, especially the ones that aren't fundamental constants? Now, because pi is important, of course, we should perhaps treat it differently, but there are uncountably many transcendental irrational real numbers. The vast majority of those numbers have no known physical meaning. Of course, one could argue that pi must exist in the universe because of how useful it is, but that's not correct if very, very good approximations of it, say, 2, 10, or millions or billions of decimal places are actually what's really going on. Back to abstractions, we have no reason to believe are real. Well, what about the infinitely many infinities? At some point, even in the universe is indeed infinite, logic dictates that there exists concepts with sizes that are literally beyond comprehension and salient meaning. Must these exist because logic says so? Or is it more reasonable to see logic as what it is? Or is it a construction that allows us to create an abstract representation of reality, rather like a map, and this even extends it beyond reality's true boundaries? To emphasize this must necessarily exist, 
only ensures that some abstraction exists in some abstract sense, and it exists then in a particular axiomatic framework. Particularly, this must necessarily exist confers no responsibility on reality whatsoever. Platonism should have a hard time weathering this storm. Of importance is not just that reality is not dictated or even influenced by our logical constructions. It is that it is the other way around. We often see this clearly with really good illusions like the illusion of intelligent design in the natural world. Our entire conception of logic has been built around the idea of how we attempt to make sense of the universe. Okay. Sure, we've extended that now into the purely abstract and rigidly formal, but all of our axioms, basically, from which logical systems get their utility, ultimately have their grounding in our best guesses about reality itself. Furthermore, the responsibility rests on our shoulders to realize that our abstract representations as humans, though very, very useful, are still abstract representations of reality. They are not statements about reality itself. Our mathematics, our scientific theories, our models, our philosophical conjectures, and our theological ramblings are all abstract structures that we designed as maps or tools for map making. To attempt to better understand the terrain of the universe we find ourselves in, all along it has been our own system of attempting to understand the world getting nudged into a neater and neater fit, so far as we can tell, by the brute force of a non-agent universe. I'd say an indifferent universe, but some Christian apologists have already proved to me that they try to exploit that term as if I'm implying agency by saying indifferent, sickeningly trite. Speaking of physical theories now, we've already access to another interesting example. Now is an exciting time of sorts because we face a problem in that our highly successful map to understanding reality, meaning logic, and its fruits has run into one of these places where ultimately we may have to re-examine the foundations of our own intellectual cartography. Quantum mechanics very successfully explains evidence from reality with the tools that we have, but it appears not to be able to be properly understood. It's possible that nature doesn't really present the basis for the kind of logic we've been pretending it does all along. Indeed, brutish ideas like the thing is here or it is not have hinged upon understanding our macroscopic experience of reality, which appears not to hold at the sufficiently microscopic level. Quantum mechanics, then, makes for a good chance to impress the lesson again, the universe, that is, reality, is not 
subject to our logic. Our logic is an abstract construction through which we attempt to understand what actually is. So physicists sometimes fall into this trap far enough to believe the physical theories literally are reality. And I would add, consider Max Tegnar, Tegmark's new book on the universe is just mathematics as a beautiful example of this. Mathematicians do likewise, although mathematics is both a map of its own and a collection of very useful map-making tools. Mathematical Platonists and their more general brethren confuse the map and the tools for the terrain of the universe, and this is exactly Max Tegmark's problem. It's also the problem with the multiverse concept. So, back to Lindsay, put this way, it seems inane, but mathematical Platonism is very seductive. The seduction of mathematical Platonism is that it really feels like mathematical objects and truths have some kind of an independent existence. The reason is that they are axiomatic systems of idealized concepts with the property that once the axioms and logic are chosen by us, the entire abstract framework is defined. That is to say that the truth values of every proposition within the reach of the mathematical system are already determined. And mathematicians essentially explore the system to find those truth values. It has a real feeling of discovery to it, but the underlying axioms are where we made it up, to put it loosely. Since many of the simpler axioms are based on our own, quote, self-evident, unquote, experience of reality, the map closely matches the terrain, and it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking the description is reality. It's very much like the children's board game called Candyland, which I'm about to ruin for all the readers who must endure playing this game with interested children. <laughs> In that game, there is a deck of cards that is shuffled, and then players take turns turning them over one at a time, following their instructions to move pieces around the board. Surprisingly, absolutely no decision-making is involved in playing a game of Candyland. So, once the cards are shuffled, the game is over. Playing merely reveals what is already determined, however much it feels like playing a game. The game was actually played in a sense when the cards were shuffled. It just doesn't look or feel like it. So to elaborate briefly, what we refer to as playing a game of Candyland is really just methodologically discovering the results of shuffling the cards before the game started. Similarly, Mathematics is a process of determining truth values for statements that follow from basic formalized axioms that we make. Once we choose the axioms and know what we are calling logic, the truth values of every statement within that system are already determined. Though we don't know those values, that is, until we prove them. 
In other words, mathematics, which is in all ways more interesting than Candyland, thank goodness, can be seen as the effort of coming to understand certain classes of axiomatic systems, those being systems of propositions in which each proposition we make is assigned a truth value by some scheme that we call logic. Of key importance in this way of looking at mathematics is that the axiomatic systems are built upon the underlying axiom statements that are abstracted from our own experience of reality and from other abstractions and are then taken to be self-evident. So generally, we accept the fact that axioms are baldly asserted. And since this is true of all axiomatic systems, it's not a strike against any one of them to point it out. Incidentally, religious apologists often like to assert that naturalism, the position that there is no supernatural, attempts to baldly assert that reality exists. So what? Nature exists is certainly more self-evident than is God exists. Axioms have to be judged against how self-evident they really are, how useful they are, how little they assume, and in other words, such ways. So this is why the theistic worldview axioms seemed more reasonable in the past than they do today. We now see that the purported existence of God is not self-evident. It has limited utility with little or no explanatory power, and yet it does assume an awful lot. Indeed, in an axiomatic system, truth values are assigned with respect to the underlying axioms. And thus, in an important sense, these, quote, absolute, unquote, truths, these aren't universal phenomena, but rather they're only as valid as the underlying axioms that we made. Well, here then lies a big but tangential point. Truth in the absolute mathematical sense, doesn't really mean anything except in terms of the underlying axioms, and these themselves are abstractions. Once we know which logic we are using, then, and we have determined a fundamental set of axioms, the locally true truth of every proposition that can be examined from within that axiomatic system is already determined. Although we know very, very few propositions worth examining and even fewer of the truth values. So, like playing Candyland, we have shuffled the cards and now get to start turning them over. Though in mathematics we're not confined to the one-card-at-a-time process in the board game, and the game does not end by reaching a certain spot on the board. Importantly, the whole axiomatic system and all its truth values 
already exist once we've chosen the axioms and the logic. So finding out truth values within it really does have a sense of discovery to it. So mathematical Platonism, in a way, has some apparently reasonable appeal. Once we've chosen the axioms and the logic, the whole thing is built. And it's up to us to explore the system and discover the timeless truths contained within it if we want to know them. Thus, it feels like those truths exist and that we are discovering them. But this is because it is easy to lose sight of the fact that we made the whole system by choosing the axioms and logic. Also often lost in the shuffle, the axioms and logic are abstract things that do not exist in reality. They are abstract statements, hence their timelessness, incidentally, and yes, do draw the relevant analogy to an eternal God here. Made in and shared by the minds of thinking beings who created them. Now, we can explore them in the mental sense, and philosophers can continue to work on what that means, but it is certainly not the same meaning as Platonists would have us accept, that these ideas, the mathematics, exist as a part of reality itself for us to find them there. That is a deeply profound concept and I wanted to introduce this particular line of thinking about how we humans are the builders of our mathematics through which axioms we accept and reject and through which axiomatic systems and logic that we create in order to test the axioms which we made because of how we are already experiencing reality, this is really fundamental to getting to the point of going down the rabbit hole. Because if you think infinity is weird, it's really weird. And I'm about to jump into this deep rabbit hole with you in the next podcast. And as I do, it is going to be somewhat difficult to grasp. I'm not going to hide that from you. I am still struggling with this concept of infinity, and I have dozens of books on it with which I have been reading through the years. And this is the first text, incidentally, James Lindsay's book, that has actually dealt with the conjunction of infinity and God. And he does discuss William Lane Craig's Kalam cosmological argument based on how Craig is misunderstanding how infinity works. But that's not really a, a line against Craig because all of us don't really yet grasp how infinity works. The best explainer of this I have ever found 
is in fact James Lindsay. But understand, it is his point of view. And in later podcasts, I will give the Platonists their voice, such as the world-renowned mathematician Roger Penrose, who comes right out and says he is a Platonist. So it's not just Mickey Mouse, John Q. Public, who are the Platonists, very seriously well-informed, powerful minds are also Platonists. This is the fun of these podcasts, to get all the sides of the argument so that we can grow in our comprehension instead of letting it make us feel so small and useless and worthless and little and insignificant, however, our minds are comprehending this entire universe. We are actually the mind, the eyes, the ears, and the voice of the universe. If we've evolved from the universe, if we have come from the universe then the universe does have mind. It's us. It does have eyes, ours. We look back onto it into billions and billions of years ago. We hear its sounds with our fantastic, scientifically made instruments, thanks to the incredible technology that we've learned to utilize, to use, to enhance our intellectual and mental capabilities. We live in a fantastic time. There is nothing but optimism here, so far as I can tell. And so I enjoy making these podcasts for you so that we can learn to see other points of view, learn to see the strengths and the weaknesses of all arguments, because at this point, at 61 years of age, having read several hundred books, I will say quite conservatively, I have yet to see a particular view that does not have weaknesses yet. And of course, it is because we are finite, we're not infinite, we can't see the infinite. We cannot see the whole, yet we are part of that whole. We know that the same elements that we have in our bodies, in our bloodstream, in our lungs, our bones, our very eyeballs, and our brains, we know these elements are out there in the stars as we look at the light coming from the stars to us. We can tell that through light spectrum. Crap, I can't even say the word. The spectrum of the light. Our instruments can test, and the various elements give their own fingerprint in the spectrum of light so that when we look at the spectrum of light, we know what the outer stars out there are made of. And this is phenomenal. We live in such a fantastic age of scientific discovery. And we have utilized to our benefit the ability to abstract, especially concerning our mathematics. But there are dangers that we are having to live in right now due to that concept. 
James Lindsay takes us through a few of them, and I will share, of course, many other authors. I have dozens and dozens of authors. I will explore the theme of Elohim as God's name in Mormonism in up-and-coming podcasts. I will explore the Hebrew and the Greek analysis of the names of God in the scriptures. I will also show how even in early Mormonism, with all of his vast, mighty revelations, Joseph Smith and the early brethren and sisters did not understand the separation of Yahweh and Elohim. They actually taught, believed, and understood Yahweh to be Heavenly Father for real. And Jesus was not understood to be Yahweh as a church harmonization of the deity and the Godhead did not come about until James E. Talmadge systematically harmonized all of the teachings into a single sound bite, which today's Mormonism believes but it is not the same as the scriptures because Talmadge had to ignore several scriptures and those are the scriptures in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. It's an amazing journey and it all starts with Joseph Smith's first vision. And I have received some incredible research from a good friend of mine, Paul Osborne, who has analyzed in detail the background, the chronological context of the first vision itself, showing how the development of the Mormon concept of God was an ongoing thing, and Joseph Smith never actually did get to a final answer throughout his entire life, which shows us again the problematic nature that Revelation itself did not give Joseph Smith a final answer on the character and the meaning of God. It is a most remarkable journey. So we have a lot to look forward to in these podcasts. In the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun, sleep in if you can, if you must wake up early, be refreshed, have a great attitude, be optimistic and positive, love one another because life is good. Life is really good. I firmly believe that. I will see you in the next new BYP Podcasts.